Hello and welcome to The Natural Evolution, produced by Rebel Health Tribe, a radio show focused on providing you with inspiration, education, and tools for true healing and transformation. I'm Michael, and I'll be your guide on this adventure as together we explore the very nature of the healing journey. We are live. I am with Dr. Chris Bjorndahl. Thank you for joining us here for the podcast today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is going to be fun. And I, uh, I mentioned before we went live that this is going to be the episode that I relate the most with because we have kind of similar challenges um, um, as far as our healing journeys and and what we've been through. So this will be this will be an interesting conversation for sure. And I've known of your work for a while, and we've had a few chats, but we haven't quote done anything professionally together yet. So this is. I'm excited to make this happen. And if you aren't familiar with Dr. Christina Bjorndahl's work, um, I'll read you a little short bio, then we're just gonna jump into to getting started. So uh, she's an expert and an authority in the treatment of mental illness, such as depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders, and eating disorders using a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. Having overcome many mental health challenges, Dr. Chris is a gifted speaker and best-selling author who has shared her wellness philosophy with platforms such as the Jenny McCarthy Show, the International Bipolar Foundation, and many health summits and docu-series. That's where I first saw you. And then she is recognized as a top ND to follow by two independent organizations. And her book, Beyond the Label, is a comprehensive guide to naturopathic mental health. And there it is on the shelf behind you, I believe. Yep, right there. And on the desk I, in front of me, I've as I've slowly transitioned um, right there yeah. uh, myself from kind of one side of the healing world of the nutrition and functional health and functional medicine over to the other of the mental, emotional, spiritual uh, side. I have become more and more intrigued with professionals on one side or the other who merge the two together, because as we were also saying before we came on that there are no sides to healing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And there seems to be these silos that things operate in. And so uh, you're somebody that I'm, I'm really happy to have on that can speak to the, just the interrelatedness of all of it. And, and I'm sure that this was discovered uh, out of necessity during mm-hmm. your own, during yeah. your own journey. So I usually ask if they're doctors, did you mm-hmm. want to be a doctor when you grew up? No. No, not, not a single one has said yes, to be honest. Um, no. So I guess where, where should we start? And depression and yeah. bipolar and anxiety. Yeah, yeah. These are, I'm guessing, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are these things that you encountered your whole life you like from childhood? Yes. Not did well. You, did you realize it as a kid? Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is the thing, um, you know, that question, when did it start for you? Mm-hmm. Right. Or what was going on in your life when, you know, you were first experiencing anxiety or depression. Yeah. So for me, that was really in university. However, when we back up the bus a little bit, I developed an eating disorder in, in high school. And if we back up the bus even further, I, I am adopted. And so I never viewed adoption really, um, on a conscious level as a trauma per se, but I formed some beliefs about myself upon learning that I was adopted. Such when did as you learn? About age five, kindergarten-ish. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also adopted. I think we've I chatted know. about that, but then yeah. I forgot that we shared that. Yes. And, uh, so you learned around age five? Yes. Yes. Okay. And the way, and so the theory in this, I'm born in 67. So the theory at the, at the time in the late 60s, 70s, the social workers told my parents to tell me the truth. When I asked, just, just tell me the truth. But what happened was I didn't understand what the word meant hundred percent in my five-year-old brain. So I processed it to mean that I was with them temporarily. Oh, that they were going to get rid of you. Yeah. Like I was just, there temporarily and eventually somebody was gonna come wow but nobody ever came i think i was in grade eight i said to my mom one day is anybody coming and she's like what are you talking about you know i'm like and so yeah we had the conversation and so every time the doorbell rang or there was a knock on the door or i I was like okay this is is this it 
right? This is going to be my mom. Yes, they're coming to get me. And so here's the thing. I process it also to mean I'm not worthy. I'm not wanted. I'm not lovable. And again, not on a conscious, you know, this is more this implicit piece. You get this, right? And then if we take it, so I had a conversation with our teacher, Gabor Mate, and he asked me about that in utero experience for me. And I opened my book with a discussion about that, which is from his book, how the mental emotional imprinting happens in utero. So when we Mm -hmm. talk about when did this happen for you, in some cases, we have to go all the way back there. And I want to also mention here, this isn't about blaming mothers at all. The environment, whether it's the father that's having mental emotional issues or the mother that's carrying you biologically can impact that developing fetus. It's not just the mother. So, um, so anyway, this has been really, really interesting, you know, for me um, to, to really go back and look at, you know, look at, look at, look at life all the way from that conception time. Yeah, I've um, been down the same road with exploring it. And I, I was told from when I was like the earliest memories I have, like it was never a secret. It was never uh, anything. And they were very clear about it. I didn't have any misconceptions. I, I, when I was really little, it was that like, I didn't come from my mom's belly. Right. I came from some other mom's belly and this was, they are taking care of me and I'm their child. And they like, were very meticulous to make sure that I understood it. And then my, my first friend who lived across the street from me when I was really little, Mick, Mick and Mike, um, (laughs) he was adopted too. And so I didn't know. And, And then when I was in grade school, like one of my friends was adopted. So like, it was never a thing to me that I was like consciously um, worried about or like thinking anything about or whatever. And then there was probably an entire literally, and people don't believe me when I say this because people are like, weren't you so intrigued to find your family and whatever. There were like entire decades of my life where I didn't think about it one time. Where it like never occurred to me to eat like from like teens, twenties, like I never thought about it. It never mattered to me. I never, whatever. When I started doing some work around patterns and depression and anxiety and addiction things. Somebody said, well, we need to talk about your adoption. And I'm like, why? (laughs) That doesn't matter. And then like, I've learned about it through Gabor and and others too, that this imprinting happens in, in utero. And there's really, and what, what he didn't, cause I was like, well, I don't know the situation that there was when I was in utero. So I don't know. And you obviously don't have uh, recall of these things. And, oh. what, you know, what he also shares is it's implicit. It's implicit memory that memory. lives in the body yeah. and in the neurodevelopment. And, but then I thought like, well, I don't know, maybe it wasn't a stressful environment. And then in, in, in his book, and then I think it's Dan Siegel's neurobiology of we, or one of those others too, they talk about how in an adoption situation, there's almost no way that the mother isn't going to be stressed. That's right. Because there's a reason she's not keeping the child. That's right. And whatever it is, there's going to be stressful things around it. There's going to be stress happening. There's, there's shame, there's guilt. There's all these things that are going to be, and the child obviously picks up on, on the, they've proven that the neurodevelopment picks up on the situation. So we both kind of started behind the eight ball (laughs) a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we came out of the womb that way, right? We came out of the womb wired somewhat. Now, the thing is, it's a matter of, what are you going to do with that information? How are you going to go forward in the world? And how did that imprinting affect you? Because when the minute that you're born, you don't, all the neurons aren't wired and firing together. Not mm-hmm. everything is, you have chance to, to rewire, which is one of the areas that I love talking about is this neuroplastic mm-hmm. piece of the puzzle. So, you know, for me, I have had a lot of, a lot of struggles in the mental health side. Um, and it's, the party line when I was struggling was take basically pharmaceutical medication. And I'm, I'm what, well, and one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book and what, and do the work that I do is I think there's more to health than just the physical level. So whether you take a pharmaceutical or a nutraceutical, you're simply on that physical level. And that got me so far. It, it, it honestly did for sure. However, I ended up bumping up against my thoughts and my emotions and my core beliefs and my shadow beliefs, my unconscious commitments and my inability to set boundaries and my people-pleasing problems, right? So there's so much more to this than just the physical. You as a human being 
it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And that's really the holistic approach we need to be having when we're working with people. And I think one of my frustrations and, and with Gabor Mate, you know, when he, he interviewed me for his, this new book he's coming out with, The Myths of Mental Illness, I think it's called something like that. Something about how messed up society is pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Finding, the subtitle is Finding Sanity in an Insane Culture. Yeah, yeah. It'll he be asked, good. Yeah, it'll be great. And he asked me, did anybody ever ask you about trauma? I'm like, when you were going through like being medicated for depression and everything else. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. So, um, and it's not about blaming things either. I want to be clear about that as well. It's really just about, you can't get to a place of quote unquote healing. If you don't first seek to understand mm -hmm. and bring some curiosity to, yeah, why do I react like that? Why do I respond in that situation? Why does my nervous system go you know, when mm. someone screams or raises their voice, You'll why do never I find the answer unless you ask the question? Yes. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah brilliant. Yeah. You'll yeah. never find the answer if you don't aren't willing to. Yeah. Uh, I, and it's funny. I didn't even, I figured since we're both, she, she's completed Gavard's training and I'm in it and uh, compassionate inquiry, the training he has. And I'm actually listening to an audiobook right now by someone else I know through Facebook, actually. His name is Chris Grosso, and he's a Buddhist recovery, recovered addict, writes books type of guy, covered in tattoos, head to face, like really unorthodox type of spiritual approach. But in his book, um, he goes and he he talks to and he interviews a lot of teachers of various types, from neuroscience to spirituality to whatever. And I'm reading the section right now where he interviewed Gabor. No. And so it's kind of ironic. And then it's funny because I've watched so many videos of Gabor now that I know the answers Gabor is going to give to his questions almost word to word. Yeah. But um, he said something I had never thought of in all the years I'd been doing recovery work and then I'd been training in these Buddhist schools and all these things is Gabor asked me when you relapse, because Chris has had many relapses and he's very open with it. And that's what most of his writing is about, the process of relapse and recovery and relapse and recovery. And what, what is it like from a spiritual standpoint? What does alcohol do for you? Like, what what benefit does it have? What does alcohol do? Because it's mainly his drug of choice is alcohol. And okay. um, he said, in the, in the 20 years I've been doing this work, nobody's ever asked me that question. Yeah. And, and he said it like opened a new door for me. Uh, and so... Um, that's a level that's beyond the physical. Like, that's not like, oh, what it does is it kills my brains. No, it removes the, <laughs> it, you know, it takes away the pain. And it so, takes away the pain. It's serving a purpose. And mm -hmm. what's the pain you're running away from? And what's the pain that you feel is too hard for you to bear? And if you don't ask that first question, you're never going to find the thing that's the thing you're running away from. That's right. And, and, and approach that thing. Yes. And, and see where that goes and see if your desire to use changes or if any, like if the pain lessens. Yes. I have a lot of friends who are recovered addicts. I spent a lot of years drinking and using various things to not feel things and to feel differently. And I don't use the word addict for myself because I, I was able to stop anything really when I wanted to. And if I, mm. yeah, now if I have a glass of wine, it's not like I'm going to go drink six bottles of wine and a bottle of vodka. So <laughs> I feel it, it cheapens the experience of people I would consider true addicts and alcoholics right. if I lump myself in with that. But that was right. my circle. Like right. that's where I was running. And so I have a lot of recovery friends and that whole addict thing I was going to say, though, that's yeah. just another label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I think we should just the DSM manual with all the labels, mm -hmm. really, it should be one word, two words on there in there. Human being. Yeah, that's it. They're all labels and there's, and it's an identity we form around being an addict, right? I mean, I'm an addict, but yeah. any person with an eating disorder, it's an addiction. It's an addiction. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people don't consider that either. They don't. Like they don't lump that in. And that's what I was saying. What I've noticed in those circles is like in the AA, for example, and AA has saved my best friend's life. He's been in it for seven years. He's been clean seven years. He goes to meetings. Right. It's not my favorite thing. Right. Um, but for some people it's amazing. So I don't want to, anyone to take this as I'm throwing it under the bus, but, uh, if you go to an AA meeting and I've been to them with friends and such, uh, there's no booze there and there's no drugs there, but there's a ton of smoking and coffee a ton of coffee and, and a ton of donuts and a ton <laughs> yeah. of sugar and a ton of everything else. And it's, it's, unless you ask the questions and get to the thing, 
that you eventually get led to of what you're trying to numb, you're just going to find another way. That's right. And so the booze goes away and the cigarettes go up or the booze goes away and the donuts go up. So that's right. Um, it's very common. That's so common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, it, and, and there's argument there, like, well, donuts aren't gonna, donuts aren't heroin. And yeah, it's well, like, okay, mm-hmm. they're close yeah. to cocaine. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you head over to rebelhealthtribe.com/kit. That's K-I-T, and grab the RHT starter kit, which includes a sampler of four free videos from our professional masterclasses and webinars, the RHT Healthy Sleep Guide. The Wellness Vault coupon book, which will save you money on all of our favorite health-related tools and resources, a professional product guide, and a coupon for 15% off your first order in our shop. That's rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit, K-I-T, and you'll get all that delivered right away. Also, if you're on Facebook, we've got a fun, engaging, and supportive group over there as well with thousands of health seekers just like yourself. Just search for Rebel Health Tribe and you'll find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. In your childhood, you're yes. starting to experience, I mean, when, at what age were you medicated? Like when did these things so, really so come about me- where yeah. someone's like, something's going on here? Something's going on. You know what? It wasn't really until uh, university. Okay. So yeah, you went university. through high school. Um, went through high school. Most- with those things or was it not very prominent yet? Not very prominent yet. High school was mostly just the eating disorder, um, which I can't mean not, not, I shouldn't say just. So the eating disorder was happening in high school. Uh, I'm a, I'm an overachiever to the nth degree. So I, I was that kid. Okay. Top student, top athlete, top winning all the scholarships like that. I was that person. And, um, and this overachievingness, this pushing and pushing myself, what was underneath all that was a sense of lack, right? I was covering up this sense of insecurity I felt, this proving my worth to the world because I didn't think that I was worthy. So, but again, not all on the conscious level. So when I get to university, I find myself in a place that I've never really been hugely before, which is in depression. Now, my parents had divorced when I was in grade 11. It was a big upset. I don't usually get emotional when I talk about my parents getting divorced, but it was a super huge upset in my life because again, what's the most important thing to any child, right? As we learn is attachment, Mm -hmm. right? And authenticity and attunement and all of these things. And so my foundation, which was somewhat a little bit, had some cracks in it now was really cracked wide open. Right. So that was a major, major event in my life. And, but I just continued marching through the world that, you know what? I'm going to, nobody's got my back. I got to overachieve to be the best. And I, by third year university, I was debilitated with depression, riddled with suicidal ideation and paralyzed by anxiety so bad that um, eventually one of my best friends went to get help for me at the student health clinic was told to make an appointment for me. So she did. I went with an indifferent willingness, took the medication Three months after that, found myself in this other place I've never been before, which is having delusional psychotic event. It took six people to wrestle me into a straitjacket. Uh, I was thrown in a rubber room until I came, injected with a powerful antipsychotic until I came back to reality. And then I'm given the diagnosis of bipolar disorder type one. And I just basically said, what's that? Never heard of that. I'd never heard of depression except for in the economic sense of the words. I didn't realize I was chronically depressed for 30 years. Yeah. yeah. I think that there were glimpses of depression and anxiety before the big crash in university. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I was a very active child. Um, so I think the exercise and yeah. that competitiveness. Kind of gave it an outlet, gave it distraction, yes. gave it something to do. Yeah. 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 Um, and so anyway, by given this diagnosis and um, just kept w- basically wearing the mask that, you know what, that's not happening to me and just marching through the world that that was your third year of college. That was my third year. Yeah. I've actually spent probably a little over a whole year of my life in psychiatric care. If I add up all the hospital stays. Um, but the big, the big spiritual turning point for me was actually the anniversary is tomorrow, June 9th. Um, 1994, so many years ago now, I had a suicide attempt that left me in a coma. 
uh, with kidney failure. And I was on dialysis and told I would need a kidney transplant. And that same girlfriend uh, brought me a book to read while I was recovering in the hospital. And um, there's a quote in this book, it's by Marianne Williamson called A Return to Love and the quote about surrender. Um, and a key word in that quote, which goes along these lines that surrender is not about breaking out of anything. It's a gentle melting into who you really are. So you let down the armor and you discover that all God needs is just one sincere surrendered moment where love matters more than anything and nothing else really matters at all. So the key word for me in that whole quote was the word love. Cause I was like, what, what is that exactly? And anybody who's at war with themselves and wants to end their life, I can tell you, there's not a lot of love happening within that human soul. That soul is suffering and that's the ego, the, story, the ego, yeah. the story. Yeah, you're stuck in the story of I'm not again, the whole, the whole story. I was, the inner critic for me, Michael, was so harsh, so harsh. Even when it came down to the line of, of the suicide piece, it was like, you can't even do that. It was almost like well, a challenge. Because you were you know? alive. No, before I did it. Oh. Afterwards, I had to then reconcile, why did that not work? That should have worked. The nephrologist said, I don't know why you're sitting here. You're a miracle. I said yesterday to, to my friend, I said, you know, my mind wanted to leave, but my soul wanted to stay. Yeah. So, and that's the first of three attempts. That was not my last suicide, first or last suicide attempts. I've had three. Ironically enough, all of them in the month of May or June. Um, which interestingly enough is, which I didn't realize, but is actually the, the month where suicide rates are the highest is the month of June. It's not January. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I would think it would be in the winter. You think so, but it's actually not. It's June. Has which anybody explored why that is? I did a, a, I did a little exploration of that. I can send you the link. Sure. Yeah. 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 There's curious. This, yeah. Traditionally, June was always when I was the happiest. My birthday's in June. School got out in June. The summer came in June. The yeah. pool opened in June. Like, but, yeah, it's the same. My birthday's yeah. in June as well. Um, you mentioned, and I hope this is okay to bring up before we went Oops. on air, that you've had malignant melanoma. And you, yeah. never, you always forget to bring it up because it was, they just cut it off. It was pretty easy. You didn't go through radiation. You didn't go through chemo. Um, I feel like that about a suicide attempt that I had. Like when I was 17, I took a bunch of muscle relaxers and like a couple other things that I found in a cabinet, but like, I kind of knew it wasn't enough that it would kill me. Probably, maybe I slept for like two days. I was super messed up. Like I woke wow. up and didn't know where I was or what was going on or whatever. Yeah. But um, I hesitate to say like I have a suicide attempt because like I took what was there. Yes, and it's, a, it's an attempt. That's good call. And it didn't state. get the attention that I wanted. Well, I don't know that every suicide attempt's an attention. I don't think so. I don't. They say that. I'm not categorizing all suicide attempts as attention. I know mine was. And then it scared me because I was like, man, I don't feel good at all. And yeah. I was just asleep for two days. Like going to sleep and waking up multiple days later and not knowing what happened in between is not a comfortable feeling. Mm -hmm. It's very bizarre and very strange and very scary. And like, yeah. Um, Okay, I say so it was a call for love. It's a call for love. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to use that language at the time, but yeah. I just wanted somebody to see how much I was in pain. Suffering. Yeah. yeah. Suffering. And mm -hmm. what were, what was your undergrad? What were you going to school for? Uh, commerce. Okay. Commerce, not not yeah. this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right. Did you finish school? Yeah. I graduated valedictorian. Surprise, at surprise. University? Of course yeah. you did. Cause you're of course I did. a overachiever. You bet. Um, that's interesting. I'm not. And, uh, <laughs> I'm good. like the, I'm like the slacker that was able it's, to like pass things just cause I was smart, but I didn't have to try. Um, oh, yeah. so I wouldn't do my homework, but I would get A's on all the tests and then I You're would like fight my with son. the teachers and yeah, yeah, yeah. The frustrating <laughs> ones for the teachers, there was the and teacher's the pet. And I was like the opposite of the teacher's pet. And I actually had teachers say like, this would be easier for me if you weren't so capable. It makes me so angry because I know you could be doing this and you're choosing not to. <laughs> and um, I actually became a teacher for a little bit. And that That's was very a... ironic. Um, but, but that that comment, though, to me, is they're projecting themselves onto you, right? Probably. 
Yeah. Like, because another response would be like, wow, Michael, this is amazing. You put in zero effort and look at you fly, man. This is awesome. I never, I never heard that one time. Yeah. It was always, why don't you apply yourself? You're a slacker. If you tried, you could do this and you could do this thing. And um, yeah. I didn't want to do the thing. I know. Like the thing they would hold out there and be like, you could do this thing. I'm like, why would I want to do that? I'm totally fine. Like I am. <laughs> you, you can have that. I'm going to yes. just do this. And then in high school, I found out I could get into college uh, purely based on my ACT score. I could go to a university if I scored high enough on my ACT. I just mentally dropped out of high school. Yeah. So we're kind of opposite. So depression doesn't always have to look the same and overachieving and self-critic aren't always the culprit. There's so many different flavors. Yes. Mine was just an overwhelming, constant shame. Yes. And that was from being told I was lazy and slacker yes. and bad and all these things. Yeah. Yeah. And what saddens me is that's the message that every child is getting pretty much still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and I think I said, you know, as you were telling that your story, I was said, you know, yeah, you sound like my son, right? Yeah. And I, as a parent, I have had to really not project my stuff onto him. Yeah. Like, you know, you asked me, did I want to be a doctor when I was little? No, what I wanted to be was an Olympic athlete. That huh. was my dream. That was my dream. That was what I wanted to be. I wanted to grow what up sport? and be an Olympic athlete, track and field, running, okay. running, surprise, surprise, running, always running away from something, right? Type A or uh, running is a... Uh connection most of my running clients in the past when i was a trainer were all type a i'm sure it's a very yang and it's a very mm -hmm. anyway. when i would take it away from them when they were like adrenal crashed and exhausted <laughs> and had thyroid problems they were furious and <laughs> what even do i have to live for <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah well but that's what we were talking about earlier too as well is that exercise piece and i don't want to diminish it but there was a call i was on recently with was we were talking about hockey too so Haley wickenheiser she's or i don't if i'm saying her last name exactly correctly she's a really famous uh female hockey player for canada's olympic team there was a call she was doing and she was she's now studying to be a medical doctor and she was saying how important exercise 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 and i piped up and i said yeah but you know yes it is but you can't out exercise a crappy diet Right. No. You can't. And what happened to me a decade ago and two months ago, blowing, blowing out my knee, you know, a decade ago when I when I blew out my knee, I fell into a very severe depression because that was the only egg I had in thing. my basket. Yeah. Took away my thing. <laughs> and I was like, Chris, are you that fragile? <laughs> like, are you seriously that fragile? That Because you can't run, bike, swim, hike, jump, whatever. You're going to commit suicide. Like, seriously, Chris. But that's taking away the thing when take yeah. away the thing and the underlying reason for the thing isn't addressed. Like I moved out West to live with my now wife and I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking weed. I stopped eating comfort trash foods. I stopped like binging shows and movies. I, I literally stopped all my things Yes. at once. I broke out in hives couldn't figure that out was like, what is it about this place? I'm allergic to probably not allergic to anything. Um, my anxiety and panic, I, I developed panic attacks, which was new. I didn't know what those were. And then all of a sudden I'm like, why can't I breathe right now? What is, am I having a heart attack? Like what, like mm -hmm. all these things just exploded. Mm -hmm. And at the time I didn't even put that together. Mm -hmm. I thought it was about moving to a cross country to a new place that triggered all these things. And it was, no, it's because I took away all my things. Yeah. How many years? That was like 10 years between the when you were 21-ish and then it, you blew out your knee the first time. The college suicide attempt. You finished valedictorian in commerce. Yeah, so it was it was um it was depression and then medication, psychosis, hospitalization, graduation, working, climb the corporate ladder, report to a CEO. Then probably love attempt. that. Your go-getter loved the yeah. corporate. Actually, yeah, that suicide attempt, they had to hire three people to run my portfolio. And that was probably very validating. Well, and infuriating and infuriating because I'm not paying me for three people. They weren't paying you three salaries. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and they weren't even paying me the same. They were paying the same guy to do the same job as me. So of course not. We, of course not, right? Affirmative yeah. action. Why would they do that? That's right. So, um, did you come back to that job? I did with a different, <laughs> through a different lens though. Oh, I realized, oh, the hours aren't 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night, seven days a week. Oh, oh okay, great. I'd only have to be here from... How much were you paying those three people? 
Yeah, exactly. That was the first suicide attempt. And then that's when I, I realized I need, okay, I want out of this corporate rat race I'm in. I really want out of it. But I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. And, and it was funny. It took me, so that was 94. I left my job in 2000. And I went back to high school um, because I didn't do the sciences the, pre, the first time around. I didn't have the prerequisite. So uh, I went to, back to high school at 33. And, but the turning point really for me was when I went to see Dr. Abraham Hoffer. So he was a nutritionally oriented psychiatrist. I saw him in 1999. So that decade or more, or the 15 years really from 1983 to 1999, 16 years, I was really in and out of depression a lot and anxiety. The psychosis piece, I had two uh, back to back and then I never had another one uh, for over a decade. So it made me even question the diagnosis. So when I started with Dr. Hoffer's nutritional program, you might notice I'm a bit red right now. Part of the reason is because I'm taking something that causes flush reaction. It's called vitamin B3. So I was taking five psychotropic medications to manage my mind at that time. And Dr. Hoffer started me on this nutritional side, which I started and I took. And I had my first year where I felt free from depression and anxiety, which I had not had in the 15 years prior. So I thought there was really something to this. And one of the reasons why I never left my job, despite the fact it was sucking the life out of me, and I was letting it because of the overachieving people pleaser side of me, I didn't know how to manage boundaries or say no, um, was it felt more threatening to me to leave the comfort and security of that environment than risk rejection looking for another job because that's my core wound right which is a perception as we know now that you know rejection isn't really it's a perception it's not a true emotion but it was my reality right it was my reality and this is why relationships I had a hard time in relationships uh, you know it, it shows up in many ways these beliefs that get imprinted or that you form consciously or not and, and this is why I'm really, really emphasizing to people I work with that it's, it's all of it, right? We got, yeah, sure, you can take Prozac or you can take St. John's work, but we really need to think about how you truly feel about you, right? What are your thoughts? How do you, how, how do you feel? What are these feelings? And when we've done this studying with, with Gabor Mate, you know, one of the questions he asked me is with, okay, depression, what emotion are you pushing down? And I'm like, I don't, I, I didn't have an answer for him. So he asked me, well, what about anger? I said, well, I don't do anger. Well, what does that tell you right there, right? And then that's, why don't you do anger? I'm not comfortable with it. Because I personally am not comfortable with losing my mind. I associate anger and rage and those high energy mm-hmm. emotions like... With a loss of control. With a loss, loss of... of yeah. Yes, yes. And I... And bipolar disorder, you know, for me, there's a lot of stigma, a lot of stigma and shame around that. My psychiatrist told me when I went to work in the corporate world, I know I'm going all over the place, but he said to me, Chris, don't tell anybody you've got this. So what did that leave me with? That left me feeling like shame. I'm wrong. Again, feeding those court beliefs, right? I'm bad. I'm not lovable. If these other people knew the truth about me, then... They wouldn't hire me. They wouldn't hire me. I'd lose my job. And then I'd lose my security. Then I'm on the street because nobody got my back. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, Yeah, it's amazing. And my mind does the same thing. It goes to the same place immediately. Like, this will happen. Then that'll happen. Then that'll happen. Then that'll happen. Then that'll happen. Then I'll be on the street. Or then, like, it's like, <laughs> but all it is is, like, I didn't make a green light or something. Like, it's, <laughs> it's what I've also learned through through studying through Gabor and, and that is, the trauma response of black and white mm-hmm. and and this and that or this right. or that it's this always that. uh either or not yes and right and so i've gray. had to learn that someone can hold an opinion of me that is one way and like be upset with me about something but their overall opinion is still one of caring but if they're upset like because my mind goes straight to like Oh, that person hates me. <laughs> or like I harmed that person. Like that this is over. This thing is done. Like th- there's yeah. no and it, immediately whatever it is is done. And the same thing with like any criticism. This person thinks I'm stupid or this person thinks this or whatever. 
And I love how he always, uh, Gabor teaches in front of our large audiences often. And so the, the training videos involve that. And someone will say a story like, you know, someone said something in a meeting and it made me feel dumb or whatever it is. And because they think I'm dumb and you'll be like, are you sure? And then he asked the audience, like, can anybody think of a reason why that person might have said the thing they said in the meeting? It could be like, they're short on sleep. They have toddlers. There's this or that or whatever other thing. And all of those things seem just as feasible, if not more so than the, the story we, the person created. But we always come up with the one that's like the worst thing. Yes. It's yes. always worst case scenario. It's always this is going to lead to this, which is going to be a doom. It's always yeah. this thing. And when I found out that there's people that don't think like that, I was like, what? How does your brain work? Like, what, what, <laughs> how, if this situation happens, what do you think? And they would yeah. tell me and I'm like, what? Like, really? You're not bullshitting yourself? Like, that's really how you process the thing is like, oh, that person loves me. But right now they're just a little upset with me. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I've been wired different. Like, I Yeah, it, for me, it's over. Done. Like, yeah, that's, it. that's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. So yeah, people pleasing becomes almost like a, a level disease. that's like obsessive. It's a disease. Because yeah, if somebody doesn't like one oh thing God. that I did, they hate me. I'm worthless. Shame pit. Let's go get some beer. Like, that was my, <laughs> that was my, that was my, and that was like an entire, and I was in the service industry for 10 years and people are pissed at you oh, all the time. Yeah. 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 They're when you harsh. Do that. They're yeah. harsh. So oh gosh, you're hitting on the, the the main the main theme. I had a real traumatizing experience with my mother-in-law, who only spent ten hours with me, and this is over about ten years of marriage. Ten hours, so not a lot of time, right? Not a lot of time. One thing she said was, "I'm sick and tired of dealing with you and your mental illness." Wow. Yeah, like talk about straight to the heart, right? Yeah. At which point, you know, my lid flipped because this is a primary relationship, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I want everybody to like me, mm -hmm. right? Especially ones that like that. Yeah, I was like serious. that. My husband's mother. Yeah. My husband looked and he was like, okay, this is not cool. You know? Anyway, the point that I'm making about why I'm saying that is I made it mean that I am, again, horrible, worthless all of that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. I must be so bad because his mother doesn't even, she's sick and tired of me and she doesn't even know me. Yeah. Like I accomplished that very quickly. Yeah. I went to, <laughs> I, I, I got counseling from my naturopathic doctor and he said this quote to me, which I could not hear nor learn. And I have a hard time with this, but I'm getting it, which is exactly what I think you were, you were, you were teaching. And it is other people's opinions of you are none of your business. I've seen that one. And there's a part of me that's really resistant to it. Wayne Dyer. Yeah, and, it's a tough uh, one, right? It's tough. I've taken it on though, like, but I took on the other extreme to balance it. Like I've gone through a lot of my life being the one, like, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks about me doing all these like brash, like right. unacceptable things because well, it's, it's pushing, it's a pushing people away. Yeah. Yeah. It pushes yeah. anybody who I felt might judge me, the type of person who might judge me. If I'm just extreme, then they'll for sure want nothing to do with me. And then I never have to deal with that That's thing. Right. Like it, it self-identifies the people who I project wouldn't approve of me yeah. and then just preemptively gets them away. That's right. So that's why I started having all kinds of loud tattoos. That's why I did a lot of certain things that I used to do is because there's people who, if they see somebody with an armful of tattoos... Well, not so much anymore. It's way less taboo now. But when yeah. I started, it was very taboo to have that. And they'd be scared of you or nervous around you or whatever. Perfect. Great. Stay the <laughs> hell away from me. Yeah. Then I then the criticism is silent. Then I don't hear it. Yeah, it's so interesting. So you that was number two was the job. The second one was in 1997. So three years after the first. I won't go into the story just because I don't want to trigger everybody. This is a Friday over the weekend. That was the whole theme of the weekend was an attempt. Monday morning, I happened to have an appointment with my psychiatrist at 9 a.m. before I was going off to work. And he asked me, how was your weekend? I said, not good. What happened? So I told him. So he admitted me right then and there. I said, you can't admit me. I have to go to work. Like, you know, I, I didn't do it, obviously. I'm sitting right here in your chair. 
And I think the reason he did that was because my mother, after the first one in 1994, she was, I think, on him. Like, are you doing well, isn't it? Isn't legally their obligation to do I that? think so. So he marched me down the hall. So that was a bit inconvenient. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. curious, like, so you're battling, and I don't even use the word battling. You are existing in a state of bipolar and depression and anxiety and, and ups and downs and all of this. It, during that window of time, uh, which never really goes away. Um, so I don't want to make it seem like this was then and now is now and everything's perfect now. But um, was there a point where you like, this is my life, this is what it's going to be. And this is what I have to deal with forever, or I'm going to get better, or this no, is going to be fixed or. So what happened was in 94, I was like, okay, I got to figure out another way to navigate this because this, this is not working. And I'm still here. And so I had to really reconcile that. I had to reconcile why am I still here and other people aren't. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy that I'm still here yeah. and other people aren't. Nothing much improved from 94 to 97 for me, except for realizing that I've got to figure out another way to navigate this. So I did group therapy. I started doing therapy. I was doing therapy. Hadn't been doing that prior. Uh, started seeing a naturopathic doctor as well in 1996. And then in 98, I was dating somebody and I, and then I, as I told you uh, earlier, his cousin committed suicide. Yeah. The that, same that, day you found out you had cancer, right? Same day I found out. I had, yeah. His death opened my eyes because, and I'll, and I'll start to cry because I sat across the dinner table from him every Sunday night for pretty much a year. And I never reached my hand across to tell him that the year before and three years before that, I tried to kill myself. So he didn't know? He didn't know. I could see he was struggling. I knew he was struggling. I was so stuck in my stigma and my shame that I couldn't even reach my hand across the table. Because you didn't want him to know? Didn't want him to know. Yeah. Didn't want anybody to know. Because you can't tell anybody, Chris, that you have bipolar disorder because yeah. nobody's going to love you with that black mark on you. Mm -hmm. So I went to his funeral. And really opened my eyes to the other side of suicide. Yeah. You got to see what's left over. I got to see what's left behind. My, my view on suicide is it's not your decision. You know, there is a spiritual element to all of us. And it's not really up to you. You know, yeah. it's not really up to you. This gets into, you know, more spiritual stuff like the idea of soul contracts and Stuff like that. But anyway, my last suicide attempt was actually not that long ago, 2009, right? When my son was three and I've never been public about, oh, you're, it's like a healing session. I'm going to have to pay you for therapy. I'll send you <laughs> I've only, Yes, <laughs> please do. <laughs> I've only been public about the first attempt, which was that one in 94, which I write about in the book. And the second one, I don't talk much about. I have been to several funerals there was a point where i wanted that yeah it wasn't that i wanted to be dead i wanted people to feel that way like i wanted to hurt people like i wanted to hurt people that were in my life gotcha and be like oh shit we shouldn't have been like that to him <laughs> or like um or acknowledgement that it was hard or like that my life was hard or like whatever right. it was when I was in high school, I would, my English partner, the teacher was really big on doing like partner exercises and things, reading stuff and then talking about it. Uh, he died. He got oh. hit by a car. Oh my gosh. And um, I went to his funeral. And I saw the like devastation. devastation. And also like how everybody else like looked at him then. You know, when people die, especially like famous people, but when people die, it's like, oh, my God, this person, blah, 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 blah. I wanted a combination of the pain that I saw certain people in. And he didn't kill himself, but like no, no. the pain yeah. that I saw certain people in, I projected certain people into those roles and was like, yes, that. And then I saw all these people who never gave a shit about him, right. who barely knew who he was. Being like, I talked to him one time at lunch and he's such a good kid or like some nonsense. Um, I wanted that too. Um, and so, I saw it and like, 
it was really powerful. But then, you know, when I was, it was 2014, I think I have his card around here. One of my best childhood friends died and it was suicide addiction, fuzzy gray area, like, um, and I had to fly back home for that. And, um, that was hard to see, like, that was, that was hard to be at. And, but the thing is, is like, this approach to, I see a lot with suicide. We're going way off what the normal arc would be here. And I don't really care. I think this is really important (laughs) stuff to talk about. Um, The whole, like, there's a thing that I think that people who aren't suicidal don't understand. And so I see these campaigns to like prevent suicide. Um, You know, if you're feeling suicidal, call this number or like whatever you're, you're mistakenly thinking that the individual wants to survive. That's right. Like there's a mistake there that, that, that they feel that something would be better if they stayed like when, when I've been in my most recent like period of being suicidal was only three years ago. Mm -hmm. I felt like everyone in my life would be better off Mm -hmm. if I killed myself And that by staying, I was like screwing up everybody else's situation. And I was like a burden on everybody else. And so it wasn't even that I wanted to kill myself for me. It was like, I thought I was doing the world a favor. A favor, yes. Like I thought I was removing a burden from everyone else, which is a people pleasing thing. That's right. And, and, and a faulty belief, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. It, I mean, it was part that I was in tons of pain. And for me, that's it's right. shame. And shame is a, Shame's a big bitch one. of an emotion. Like, that's a yeah. tough one. And um, yeah. it was shame mixed with like, I went down the line of every person in my life. And I was like, this is how this will be better for this person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's a mistake that I think a lot of people who have never been suicidal, that they don't understand mm-hmm. that the it's oh it's so selfish to kill yourself maybe in some instances possibly but in mine no I was making a sacrifice for other people like that's how I viewed it I was going to sacrifice myself to like pull me out of their life to make their life better and that's an angle I never see addressed in any of the suicidal things because if you're not suicidal that's really difficult to understand it is it is. And the, the other piece for me is that I'm wanting to end the suffering. Mm. I'm wanting to end my suffering. And, and through ending my suffering, you will, you will no longer have to suffer because you're suffering along with me through my mm. suffering. Yeah, right? it'll suck for a little bit at first, yeah. and then you'll move on, and then you don't have to deal with me. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and I, I feel that um, there, like my dad, you know, when this, that first suicide attempt um, was obviously was um, was quite shocking to some of my family. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and I said, well, don't you think about suicide? He's like, no. I'm like, what? He's like, Chris, it's not actually. No, I, I don't actually. And I was like, I can't believe you don't think about it. And he's like, I can't believe you think about it. You know, so it's like. Okay. And I don't want to say anything about normalcy around that. It's just extremes, right? One person's thinking about it all the other time, all the time. The other person's not thinking about it at all. And it's about meeting and partly in the middle too, to help understand. Because I think that if you're not thinking about death, then what is life? Yeah. I think death is, and I, I was having this conversation with my husband the other day. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised when I, when, when I ask people, what are your fears? And they say death. And I think, why is that? Why is that a fear? Like, isn't that, you know, you're not getting out of here alive, right? Like that shouldn't be, not be a newsflash to you. It's like, I'm scared of Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, I don't want to make light of suicide. It's a very heavy, weighty Mm -hmm. uh, topic. I've spent a lot of my life living there uh, in that space and that energy. But I, what I want people to understand is ultimately suicidal thoughts are simply just that they are just thoughts. And when you learn to navigate and manage your mind, so then you're no longer at the mercy of it, it will help you. And part of managing the mind involves leaning into the body and tuning into the emotions that are rising within you and riding those waves. The depths of darkness leads you to the beauty of the dawn. 
the thoughts themselves do not hurt you. Yeah. At, I mean, they can hurt you. They can move you to tears and they can well, yeah, yeah, yeah. stir but, you up. But but it's the action that it's taking action on the thought yeah. that's going to hurt you ultimately. Yeah. Right. And words hurt. Like if you string that words together, write words out 20 times, it says it spells swords. So the words we use hurt and the words you're thinking about you hurt you. And I think for me, it's been this journey into this really into the seat of my soul to figure out how the hell do I learn to love and accept myself? Not only this diagnosis, but also this belief, this, you know, rewire this belief that I'm not wanted. Mm. Right. When and, we figure it out, let me know because I'm on the same path. Yeah. Well, and you know, that that's that's the journey in the book that I really think is helpful. And I think it is about, you know, it's not a destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a process. I don't struggle like I used to. And a lot of people ask me, you know, like, are, oh, are you healed? And I'm like, you know, I think the thing for me was when I asked the question, why is this happening to me? Right. Why am I? Why? Why? And the answer I always got was it's genetic. I was like, well, that's a bullshit answer. Sorry yeah. for swearing, but I'm adopted. So how do yeah. I, how, how do I know that that's true? Yeah. I can't look to my, so I didn't accept it as the truth. And mm-hmm. that to answer a question that you I've asked had the same reaction earlier, to that suggestion myself. It, the, the, that it's the genetic one. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's a piece of the puzzle and genes load the gun, right? But lifestyle pulls that trigger. And the environment is a big part of that. They've done studies on adopted twins, separated, identical twins, separated at birth, right? They don't get the same health uh, Mm -mm. diseases. And why is that? Right? So the environment matters. And so I think for me, it's really been about figuring out, looking at myself as something to, uh, and I guess this is partly ties into the achieving, but, but how do I, how do I? How do I move into this place of healing? And I think Jeff Foster said it beautifully. He said, he said, anxiety, depression, insert whatever word you want to use, sadness, anger, whatever, doesn't actually want to be healed. It wants to be held. You know, so when I learned to embrace and stopped hating bipolar disorder, stopped hating Mm -hmm. depression, stopped hating psychosis, I leaned into compassion for myself and love. That's when the healing, you know, that, holding me, right? Is that making sense? It shifted everything for me too. Yeah. 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 Um, You're not trying to fix anything. There's nothing wrong with you. And and even down to like something not quite as, I don't want to say serious uh, or significant, but I, I've learned the last couple of years too, that I have really severe ADD. Yes. I and, probably have um, it too. Yeah, and learning that though, like figuring that out and learning that and, you know, in Gabor's book, because he has a book on ADD as well. And yeah. they were like, you know, this, 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 all these different things that how it manifests. And I was like, check, 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 check. And I was like, wow, that really explains a lot of things. And this really makes sense. And mm-hmm. it allowed me to have so much more compassion for myself where that was like a big area where I would get criticized a lot Mm. and develop this story that I'm like lazy, that I'm a procrastinator, Mm. that I'm can't pay attention to anything, all these insert, you want to throw in there. And I realized like my brain is wired that way. Yes. Like, and it's for a reason that that happened. And, and then that wasn't under my control. I didn't choose. I didn't choose to not be able to pay attention to things. I didn't choose to like, have all these things wired in my brain a certain way and he said like adoptees are about i think he said eight times more likely to have add they're over 10 times more likely to have uh addiction mental illness mental illness and suicide and all these things and even learning that statistic helped me Mm -hmm. because people are like why does that matter and it's like because it means that there's a reason like it means that Mm -hmm. that nothing's wrong with me Mm -hmm. like it's the how I've experienced life has been a natural reaction to the circumstances that I was in and my brain developed a certain way. Like those things allowed me to see myself less in a 
I am wrong. wrong. I am broken. I am this. And it's more in the, this happened. And so this is how it went. It and it, yeah, it's more just saying, this is me. Yeah. Not and, this is what's wrong with me. Right. And, and, and understanding it allowed me to, because it doesn't solve the problem, like figuring out your, the reason for that you have the things that you have to do, like we were talking earlier, figuring it out doesn't solve it. Like just figuring out, I have this pattern, so I drink, so I don't feel this thing. And the thing is this, that doesn't solve it, yeah. but that's the first step. Like that's because you can't right. heal something you don't know is there. And you can't heal something if you don't have compassion for yourself, because you won't. That's right. Like it, it won't, you won't, you won't. And so like the being held is really is really true like and i i'm going to share this on the i haven't publicly but i'm going to on an episode that i haven't recorded yet that they will have heard by now so might as well <laughs> okay um, for me uh, my last bout of suicidal depression was a few years ago and yeah. i tried all these things and it was a it was a plant medicine yes psychedelic ceremony that flipped it for yeah. me and was it ayahuasca that you did no it no. was a combination of a few other things but yes that's um, awesome it was mainly an MDMA-like substance. Yes. Uh, it was made from sassafras, but it's like a heart-opening type of thing. Right. And for a year, I thought it was the medicine that like flipped my brain, yeah. but it wasn't. It was that night on whatever I was on, I was able to allow myself to be held. Right. And usually I wouldn't. I'm like averse to hugs and averse to that kind of thing and averse to being held or being any of that. And... Um, I allowed that mm. and like absorbed it, mm -hmm. like allowed it, not only allowed it, but I didn't just allow it and be like this in being held. Like I right, was right. You, you allowed it. Like it. I, you yeah, I received it and it yeah. shifted everything. Nice. And that was from another person, but we can do that for ourselves. Like yes. it was, it was being held. That's we what need, shifted the whole thing. We need to be held. Yeah. We need to not only be held by others, we need to, we need to hold ourselves too. Mm -hmm. Because babies, if you just leave them yeah. and you don't hold them, you just leave them, they will die. Yeah. Not because you didn't give them some food. They have food. Yeah. They will die because we are wired for connection. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So. Yeah. And so when you hold yourself out of your heart, and you hold others out of your heart, mm -hmm. then you block. It's it's an obstacle to cure. Yeah, and, and it hurts when you open that up because all the things that you didn't allow mm -hmm. will be there, and it's the only way. It's the only way through. So, mm -hmm. I'd love to have you back another time to chat more about how you went into naturopathic medicine. Yeah, and, we didn't even. How they yeah. all, no, we just kind yeah. of. I, it's great. This was awesome. It's really good. I think everyone will benefit from hearing it. And uh, I'd love to record again in the future to talk about. Um, There's so much to talk about. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. How at you least found, ten steps. Yeah, how you found <laughs> your way into naturopathic medicine and like yes. what the book is about and your approach and and how you've turned your wound into medicine yeah for sure absolutely i love talking with you yeah so, so let's do um, that we'll schedule that and so this will be part one we didn't okay. know that when we started it but this will be part one part we'll one do part two yeah we and might do so, part 10 who knows who knows yeah because i knew when I, I knew we'd have a lot in common like i knew we had a similar and I had forgotten about the adoption. That takes it to like a whole nother. A whole nother level. Thing, and we got the same, basically the same birthdays. Same birthdays, same. Yeah. And a lot of similarities. There's so much like, I get so excited when I'm talking to somebody who can understand. Mm -hmm. So, cause so many people can't understand and they can try and they can sort of like say, Oh, I get it. That sounds really hard, but there's a difference. Yeah. And so I get really excited when like, somebody can see, like somebody understands. And I feel like when two people, like we, we can talk about this because we both see it and we both understand it, that there's like a transmission there that makes it very clear for people to see in a way that might not be. Mm. Or if there's other people out there who understand, yeah, I yeah. hope you feel seen, you know, like I hope that this, yeah. So, um, and She's a much better resource for this stuff right now than I am. So go to her website, <laughs> books and things are below in the show notes. So if you want to check out the book and her approach and, and her website and all of that, 
check that out. Um, I'm not quite yet in the helping people in this department stage. I'm working my way there. I'm just a bunch of years behind you as far as training and experience and practice. And, and so um, I'm on my way. And uh, oh, for well now, your way. If, you, if you're looking for resources along these lines and you struggle with a lot of these mental illness related, I don't even like that term. No, um, uh, these experiences in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mental illness to me just, I don't, it doesn't land right, but challenges in the mental emotional arena. Um, yeah. Check out her website or books. Uh, her book is right below. There'll be links to everything uh, right down there. So what would be, is it, Dr. Christina Bjorndahl.com. Is that yeah. your? Yeah. Okay. Or D, yeah. yeah. Just DR. DR. Yeah. 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 yeah Christina so Bjorndahl. go there, check out the book, check out her work. Um, you'll see her speaking on all kinds of things. She's joining us on my new platform, Anora, which will be open now when you hear this. So um, that is my thing that I've created out of my wound. And so things have come a long way since both of us were in where we were. So. But thank you for, for sharing so openly and freely. And I hope that everybody found this as powerful of a conversation as I have. Thank you. Lots of love to you. And this brings us to the end of today's episode. Head on over to rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit to access the RHT Quick Start Bundle, which includes four full-length presentations from our RHT masterclasses two downloadable PDF guides, and a 15% off coupon, which you can use in our retail shop. If you're on Facebook, come join our Rebel Health Tribe group over there. And finally, if you like the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.